This episode of Talking Technology with Atlas is brought to you by Veracross and Toddle. Atlas thanks our vendors for their support. This episode is brought to you by Toddle. Toddle is a teacher-built, AI-powered platform that's more than a learning management system. The founders of Toddle are former teachers who realized their workflow was broken as they struggled between systems that didn't talk to each other. So they created Toddle, a teaching and learning platform for K-12 progressive schools. Toddle goes beyond a typical LMS, streamlining all aspects of teaching, from curriculum planning and mapping, to assessments and gradebook, to progress reports and family communication. This includes standards and competency-based learning, student portfolios, project-based learning, and much more. So if you're looking for a new platform or want to stay ahead of the curve and want the best tools for your teachers, check out Toddle. We've linked to their website in the show notes. Their team is very responsive, and if they ask... Tell them Atlas sent you. Veracross is the one-person, one-record school management platform that has been solving the unique challenges of K-12 private and independent schools for the last 20 years. From admissions and enrollment, to billing and accounting, to academics and development, data updates instantly across all departments to increase efficiencies, remove silos, and foster school-wide collaboration. With Veracross, you can trust that every constituent is accessing current, correct, and complete information. When all departments, teachers, students, and families are using the same source of information, you create a more unified, connected school community. With Veracross, go from school data chaos to it just works. Visit www.veracross.com to learn more. Welcome to Talking Technology with Atlas, the show that plugs you into the important topics and trends for technology leaders, all through a unique independent school lens. We'll hear stories from technology directors and other special guests from the independent school community and provide you with focused learning and deep dive topics. And now, please welcome your host, Christina Llewellyn. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Talking Technology with Atlas. I'm Christina Llewellyn, the Executive Director of the Association of Technology Leaders in Independent Schools. And I am Bill Stites, the Director of Technology at Montclair Kimberly Academy. And I'm Hiram Cuevas, Director of Information Systems and Academic Technology at St. Christopher's School in Richmond, Virginia. Hello, gentlemen. We are reunited again. It's great to see you. Good to see you as well. Good to see you, too. So I went out and I ran some errands knowing that we were going to sit down and record today. And I had this moment where I could not find my phone. And I've been in my office all day and I've used the phone today in the office. And I ended up leaving and running my errand. I had to go to the post office without my phone. And I had nothing to listen to because my car, I don't even know how to run the radio in my car, right? Like it just connects to my phone. And I started thinking in this very, it was only about a five minute drive there and back to the post office. But in that five minutes, which felt like a lifetime, I started thinking about like, gosh, I did grow up without a phone. I mean, like I'm old enough to have grown up without a phone. And so now I was just thinking about what an indispensable piece of technology it is. But as I was driving back, I also thought there are pieces of my life that are tech focused and tech based that I just couldn't live without, you know, like for Atlas. Our entire organization is organized on Asana. And, you know, as a project management system, we use it as a communication tool. And so what happened if like, you know, thinking about today's guest that we're going to bring in, if something happened to Asana and it got hacked, Atlas would be like, grind to a halt, right? So before we welcome our guest and start talking about all of our cyber issues that we all need to be thinking about, what is it 
for you that would just like grind you to a halt? What technology can you not live without? I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you one work-related and one personal-related. The work-related for me, honestly, is Slack at this point. Just so much goes on within Slack. We adopted it at MKA. We're on three different campuses around the town of Montclair, so it's not like we're all in one place. And, you know, my office is separate from everyone else. So it's a great tool for us for transparent communication and just knowing what's going on across all different areas. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about the fact that like you guys are sort of decentralized. That's weird. For an independent school, you're like virtual. Exactly. And it's difficult to balance. Yeah. Yep. It's difficult to balance and having that as a place where we can go in order to share everything that we're dealing with is one of those. The personal one, and I think this is more, and Christine, I think, well, and Hiram, you as well, you know, when you've got children and your children are traveling abroad, the find my feature on the Apple phone, whether it's the AirTag that I've got in my wallet, or whether it's the fact that it's turned on on my kid's phone while he's spending the semester in Seville, or when my youngest is in South Jersey now dealing with stuff at college, having that level of just like, you know, check-in, not like monitoring, not like, you know, on top of them all the time, but just... Oh, no. I mean, I'm a full-on stalker. We admit it in my family. And, you know, my kids are great, but I definitely am like, well, let's just stalk. And I, I stalk my parents. Like, how close are they to the house? We have a big life circle at Life360, and I stalk them. So you're better than I if you're saying, no, you don't monitor. I, I want to know where my children are. <laughs> They're adults, but I don't care. Yeah, I think more so with the oldest now that when he was in Spain, the fact that it worked abroad was awesome. But also just, to, you know, there's a time difference. There's all these different things going on. Just, you know, and then, of course, he's like traveling the globe as he's like abroad. This week he was in Amsterdam. You know, the week before he was in like Dublin. Just knowing he's safe. So are you zooming in to see what bar he's hanging out at? When he was in Amsterdam, I refused to Zoom because there was just too much going on in Amsterdam that I didn't want to know about. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so now I have a bigger list. I'm going to take yours and put them on my list. I like both of those. Hiram, what about you? So from a productivity perspective, I mean, I've grown up using laptops since 1991. And really, ever since I've moved to three monitors on my desk, my productivity will sink tremendously if I don't have those multiple screens. I, I just love having lots of content up that I can go back and forth with. And it really makes me super, super efficient. On the personal side, I'm going to give you two. Like you, Bill, I love Life360. My oldest daughter is a world traveler, and it's really nice knowing where she is and how fast she's traveling. If she happens to be on a bus or whatnot, and I was like, ooh, that's kilometers, not, not miles per hour. Okay, that's cool. The other one that my family really enjoys and we share content all the time on is Spotify. Spotify has been a big boon for us. And actually, I did a lot of traveling this past week, and I listened to a bunch of podcasts, the NBOA podcast, and listened to our podcast last week with Jeff. So it was really exciting. I would say Spotify, Life360, and then from a hardware perspective, I've got to have my three monitors. Not $2, but three monitors. Got it. Nice reference. Well, here, here's the thing. This is why we need our guest today. We are welcoming to our pod today, Bob Olson from Anchor Up. Atlas has a relationship with Ankara, and I've presented with Bob. You guys have relationships with him as well. I think that this is the perfect time to bring him into the conversation. Bob, hello, and welcome to Talking Tech with Atlas. And I'm sure you're sitting there going, uh-huh, uh-huh, privacy, data. 
cyber issues. So you just heard what tech we can't live without. We'll have you introduce yourself and tell everybody your background. But before we go, does anything we just said make you cringe from a cyber safety perspective? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me, first of all. Super happy to be here and engage in conversation around topics. It's very important to me. Yeah, I was definitely having some, uh, I had to bite my tongue a little bit on some of the privacy considerations. And I get it, I'm a parent of two millennials, and it is difficult to not track them. My son, known to turn it off at times, let's just say. (laughs) My daughter's a little bit more open. And I think that's the challenge that we all face. I mean, from a security and and privacy standpoint, it's really hard and it's really, there's a lot of gray space uh, and there's a lot of decisions and thoughtfulness that needs to go into technology. and, And I think that's where we all struggle a bit, quite frankly, you know, as parents, as providers, as professionals, and it's not an easy answer. Which is exactly why we've invited you to join us today. Bob, your background, you have an extensive background in cybersecurity. It's what your company does. But let's start first with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and the expertise that you are bringing to this conversation today? I actually did not think I was going to go down the career path that I was going down. Originally, when I got out of college, went into the military and had every intention of going into federal law enforcement. And it just so happens that the the unit I wound up being assigned to for most of my time in, we were always on call and we had a lot of downtime, a lot of hurry up and wait kind of time. And I really got into computers, got into a little bit of programming, got into technology and just really it piqued my interest in, and got me excited. So after I got out of the military, I went into the telecommunications space, doing like network design, engineering, got into a bit of operations. I, I started out at Verizon and it was an amazing experience. They put me through a tremendous amount of training. Really, that kind of started my journey. So again, early career, started out doing mostly engineering, network design, implementation type work. And then as my career unfolded, I was fortunate to work in you know, a really big organization like Verizon, as well as some smaller startups. And this was sort of during the telecom boom, and then unfortunately the bust. And I was fortunate to be exposed to not just the technical aspects, but a lot of operational aspects of technology. And also started to get into security, which you know wasn't called cybersecurity at the time. From Verizon, I went to a startup. From that startup, I went and did a couple of my own startups and served as a, a CIO and a CISO for a couple of mid-market firms. And then for the last, I guess, eight or nine years, I've been serving as, I would say, a classic kind of consultant focused purely on cybersecurity and data privacy, which has really been fun. I love the consulting world because it gives me a window into a a lot of different client organizations, different sizes, different industries, just different geographical locations and considerations. And it's very rapidly evolving, as you guys know, and we'll talk about. It's just a fun space to be. It's sometimes, quite frankly, overwhelming trying to keep track of everything that's going on. But it is fun to try and sort of keep up, if you will. So now let's talk about Ankara for a minute, because we have a pretty close relationship you know, as a vendor partner of Atlas's, you guys provide for Atlas members kind of a free mock phishing assessment and kind of giving folks a scorecard if schools are really under-resourced and or starting this journey. Tell me a little bit about Ankara, first of all, but also let me know, are there still schools that haven't walked down the path of 
mock phishing or some of these very kind of entry-level cybersecurity protocols that they can take? Are there still schools that are completely head in the sand, not really addressing these issues? I think over the last few years, we've seen a bit of a sea change. I think there are definitely, you know, are there still schools that, as you said, have their head in the sand? For sure. I mean, that's not unique to the K through 12 academic space. That's true. I think across really all industries, even industries that you would assume like healthcare and financial services, you know, we still run into organizations there that haven't really done much, if anything, to, to really kind of build out a security program. Privacy is generally an afterthought as well. So Agora, we are focused on cybersecurity and data privacy advisory services. We're vendor agnostic, so we don't, I always say that we're vendor agnostic, but we have strong opinions, our expertise. That's what we sell. So we don't resell anything. We don't have any relationships with any of the big providers that are out there, whether it's from a hardware, software, managed service provider perspective. It's really helping clients. And this is actually one of the most rewarding aspects of what we do is really getting to know an organization's business model, operating model, who their sort of key stakeholders and constituents are, and helping them build a security program or mature if they've got a good foundation and data privacy program that makes sense for them. So context and just really understanding what is doable, because there's lots of constraints that are out there and not just budgetary. There's also, it's sometimes overwhelming if you look at just like the threat landscape, let's say, you know, trying to build a program that secures you against every potential threat actor group that's out there. I think any organization, particularly a K through 12 school that's trying to defend against everything is probably not going to defend well against anything. It's just not realistic. And so bringing our expertise and what we see from a threat landscape and saying, okay, here, given your organization's profile, here are the threats. Here's what we think is the most sort of likely and most impactful. And then it's really build a program around that. And it is a little bit of a moving target, meaning that, you know, the threat actors mature, they evolve, but just like anything, it's kind of a living organism and it needs to continue to grow and mature. So everybody's on a different journey. That's, I think, the reality. I know that the guys are going to want to jump in with some specific questions for you before I unleash them upon you. One of my questions is in the space of what you're talking about, the threat landscape. What are the trends right now? Like, what are some of the high level either trends or issues you're seeing or what are schools calling you to help out with? Some of the trends that we're seeing is I think organizations are understanding that they can't defend against everything. And so being really thoughtful from a threat intel, threat sort of, you know, understanding the landscape, I think that's important. Resources are precious, doesn't matter what organization we're talking about. And so tailoring their actions to where they get the biggest bang for the buck, so to speak, and really aligning with the threat landscape that's out there. Insurance industry continues to evolve. I speak at a lot of K through 12 conferences and just the, the level of premium increases year over year that folks come up and share with me is just mind-blowing. I think it's stabilized a little bit, or it's maybe not quite as bad as it was for a few years, but we're still hearing that. And so trying to help folks understand the value of a cyber insurance policy and making sure that it does align with their risk profile, that they understand it, that it really is comprehensive as much as it needs to be or can be. And then probably the, the elephant in the room is AI. You know, everybody's trying to wrap their head around sort of the art of the possible. And it seems like it's almost endless in all of the legal and moral and ethical regulatory sort of implications of AI. 
I'm both excited and terrified, quite frankly, with AI. So those are some of the things that we're seeing. One last thought is definitely we're seeing, it. I would say, an accelerated convergence of cybersecurity and data privacy from a regulatory standpoint. So, you know, if I'm an IT director at a, an Atlas member school, <laughs> you're probably getting a lot of questions or starting to get questions around data privacy. And those folks never envisioned that they would have to be an expert on data privacy, which is a, a challenging topic, you know, what regulations apply. There was a few things you mentioned there that really resonated. And I think the world in which we're living right now, where we're having to meet the specifications that all these insurance policies are putting out, as much as when I read them and have to go through them, I'm like pulling what little hair I have left in my head out trying to figure out how do we align with these things? Because a lot of times the ways in which they're worded is very difficult to follow. It does provide us as school technologists the tool kind of to move some of these initiatives through. Because if I can say that this is not, you know, the tech department wanting to do this, but this is something we need to do to be in compliance for insurance and legal reasons, that gives a little extra push behind the work that we have to do. So there's that piece of it that I think is is a double-edged sword there in terms of having to deal with the insurance to be compliant, but what that also gives us in terms of that extra push. The one thing I wanted to comment on specifically, as a school that's worked very closely with Anchor, Compass back in the day, you know, we've been with you and, and working with you guys for quite a while, is really what I think is very thoughtful about the way in which you work with schools is we went through a full-blown kind of like a cyber audit. And we spent a lot of time with people at Ankara going through the document that we were filling out. And I think I'll go back to that cybersecurity piece where you read it and you're not really sure what they meant and and how that all applies. And one of the things I think is really a great exercise, not only in, in the report that you receive at the end, but the process that you go through is really taking a deep dive into some of these questions that you need to answer and having a conversation. As you were saying, Bob, like, what's the threat landscape? What do you really need to be most concerned with? And then having that conversation with an expert about what it is your goals are as a school, what is best practice, and where is that place where you can meet in the middle and really get the biggest bang for your buck, I think is one of the best things that can come out of working with Anchor, a company like Anchor, to go through these types of things. If you've got that level of focus, I think it's great. One of the presentations I often do for Atlas is I focus on the low-hanging fruit. And I think you and the work that you do there surfaces a lot of low-hanging fruit for schools in a way in which they can realistically apply. And I think that's great. And that focus is fabulous. I appreciate very much the feedback. And yeah, it's something that we're passionate about. We've been fortunate to work with, I think it's over 75 schools. And one thing I'll add also is a lot of organizations have done a pretty good job of investing in technology. I'm a huge fan of the low-hanging fruit. There's always low-hanging fruit. There's also an opportunity to really maximize the technology investment that's already been made. You know, a lot of times what we'll see is organizations immediately think that they've got to go buy something else. In a lot of cases, that's really not necessarily the case. It's that they don't maybe understand the full value and functionality of what they've already invested in, especially when you get into some of the cloud platforms. So it's another important, I think, consideration. Just to follow up really quickly on that, when you when you think about that low-hanging fruit then, 
What is that in your mind when you think about schools and what they can pick off and what they can really get the biggest bang for the buck early on? So the way that we think about you know security is from a kind of people policy and technology or people process and technology. And I think there's low-hanging fruit really across each of those typically. And low-hanging fruit also that has a really high value on avoiding or dramatically minimizing any type of a data breach. I'll start with one of the easiest ones on the technology side, MFA, you know, multi-factor. Yes, it could be defeated, but... (laughs) Can I get an amen? We try to reinforce that for you all the time, but it's funny how many schools still aren't using it. It is. And a lot of it, what we find is, and this is still true today, is there's a misperception on the complexity of implementing it and then just using it. And I've had people come up to me at conferences and just say, you know, basically they, they're like, oh, it's just too complex. And I'm like, let me show you how easy it is. And I show them and they're like, that's it. Yeah, it's literally that simple. Well, you guys must have done something special. I'm like, no, it's not. I mean, you know, back in the day, it was not nearly as easy. You know, I think the industry has done a good job. Where we see issues is there still are vendors who have not adopted it for their individual project, which just blows my mind. It's one thing if it's not available. It's another thing if you're just choosing not to use it as an organization. So I think MFA is really important, you know, from a policy procedure standpoint, having a, a really thoughtful and not something that's downloaded off the internet, you know, written information security policy, which, you know, goes under a bunch of different names, but just stating what everyone's allowed to do or not do and having a process in there for exceptions. So uh, <laughs> I'm sure you guys know, have lots of stories of faculty and staff downloading applications that are not, quote, approved or whitelisted. And and you don't want to discourage that because of the mission, but you want to provide a process for that to go through proper due diligence and vetting. And again, you know, simple is better. And then on the people side, you creative security awareness training. There's some good tools that are out there that you've got to use for gamifying and phishing and that sort of thing. But where I see a next step above that is helping folks understand the why. Why are we going through this? What does it mean to me given my role at the school, because what folks don't realize is a lot of times we get that, oh, well, I would never be targeted or it would never happen to me. And when you talk through it with them, or at least give them an opportunity to ask questions, then it's like the light bulb goes off a little bit. And what they don't realize, and also a lot of it transcends into their personal lives, because again, like we're talking about earlier, it kind of blurs together. So good security at work or at the school is also probably good security in their personal lives. <laughs> I think you were probably the one, Bob, that said to me or kind of taught the Atlas team an analogy that we use quite a bit with schools, and that is the debit card pin analogy when it comes to MFA. Like if if you steal my debit card, you can't necessarily drain out my account at an ATM unless you have the pin. And it might even put a stop to you shopping with it, et cetera. And so I think that having the MFA seems like it should be a no-brainer, and yet it still can be complicated at certain schools. I will say that in the last few years, as I've traveled and I speak to different audiences, I'll ask them if they're using MFA at their schools. And I see more hands now than not. So I think that we're moving in the right direction. But it leads me to ask you whether people generally call you proactively or reactively. Are you getting like happy, please help me calls more often? Or are you getting we're in trouble calls at Ankara? It depends on what day it is and what time of year. We get a bit of both. It's not 50-50, but we do unfortunately get, we do a lot of work in the K-12 and higher ed space. 
as it relates to data breach response, incident response, triaging, threat containment. You probably have seen, if, if you look at some of the, the big cyber insurance carriers that publish claims data and, and some analysis around it, you know, the education space has been, unfortunately, ascending that list into the top, typically they're in the top three to five sectors that are filing the most claims and unfortunately are being targeted the most. So we, we definitely continue to see a higher volume than I would like from K through 12 schools. Is that because education tends to be like a weak link? Is it because our schools are penetrable? Like, why are we climbing the list? That is not something to be proud of. No, it's not. Soft targets. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a combination of things. I think, you know, the threat actors are going to go after sort of, I'll say the easy targets because they know that K through 12 schools, really just the educational sector in general, are generally resource limited on the IT and security side, or maybe they're leveraging a managed service provider, which presents, you know, an interesting sort of way to kind of attack the organization. And IT directors are in a really tough spot where they've got this interesting mission set that you don't see in a for-profit where they're trying to balance securing the organization, making sure all the technology works, that everybody has what they need, but doing it in a way that still fosters creativity and collaboration and all those things. And so sometimes in the spirit of creativity and collaboration, there are proverbial doors or things that are left open, unfortunately, that can be exploited. The other piece to it is, you know, at the end of the day, you can have the best technical defenses, the best policies. If people do not so intelligent things, let's say sometimes and make bad choices or just, I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody, you know, like somebody did a series of things that it was like an out-of-body experience almost when you talk to them afterwards. Because you're like, let's walk through this. You did this and this and this. And they're like, yeah, that was really stupid, wasn't it? The other thing is, I mean, the reality is that threat actors are increasingly getting more sophisticated. AI is certainly going to help them. We're already seeing that. It's making sort of mediocre hackers much more proficient, unfortunately. And it's a lucrative business. Data is currency, even still today. So yeah, I don't think it's any one thing, unfortunately. So Bob, I'm actually thrilled for this conversation because you have validated so much of what I actually just went through this morning. We had a meeting with a couple of board members and a parent that works in this space to kind of give them an overview of what we do here at St. Christopher's School. And the thing that resonates with me that, that you mentioned, it seemed multiple times, and we've actually mentioned in multiple episodes of this podcast, is how important relationships are. So the fact that you were talking about putting the the personal and your professional lives together with the same skill set is huge. And I reference today that very thought by saying we're responsible for creating a life skill for all of our constituents in these areas, whether it is cyber, whether it is privacy or AI. This is a field that's going to continue to grow. And I'm going to steal something from the chat that Ashley wrote. She says, you know, even taking a look at clean credit records that aren't being monitored, these are things that people just are not familiar with. And our youngest soon-to-be adults in high school, they really have no concept of how much information of theirs is already out there and what those impacts could be to their digital footprint outside of social media in terms of things like credit records, et cetera. So this has just been a fantastic conversation so far. Thank you. A lot of people do struggle, and I do sometimes as well, admittedly, with understanding the real intentions behind the hackers. Because everybody immediately goes to, it's just a, like a quick monetary gain. 
There are nations, I mean, this is going to sound like a little tinfoil haddish of me, but there are nation states who I won't mention that are playing the long game. So they're assuming that your students, and I'm sure they're right, if you look at your alumni, are going to go on to very successful. So they are looking to essentially vacuum up all the data that they have and over time, you know, essentially track these individuals and at some point potentially be able to use something, maybe some data that they collected or something along the way to potentially blackmail or impersonate or whatever. You've got these deep fakes now. So whenever I mention stuff like this, sometimes people like roll their eyes like, oh, this guy's crazy. But truly, it's not a hypothesis of mine. It's a fact. I mean, we've seen it with some of the, the work that we do. And again, I think that's where folks, unfortunately, there's a lot of awareness that still needs to be raised because it's not just, oh, they got my social security number, who cares kind of a thing. It's much more strategic in a lot of cases. In other cases, it's not. They're looking to make a dollar and they're going to you know, encrypt the data and hold you hostage for you know, a ransomware payment. And that for sure still happens a lot today, but there's also like a more strategic long-term kind of aspect too, which I appreciate. It sounds like the way you're thinking about Hiram. So yeah, I think that's an area where folks could get a lot more knowledgeable and sort of insightful. I think there was something in the air in Virginia and in New Jersey because my morning started out much like Hiram's. We had a meeting, administrative meeting this morning, where one of the things we ended up talking about was the idea of all of these tools that we're using and the way in which COVID kind of exacerbated the proliferation of those tools and just the number of those that are out there. And the ones that have gone through vetting and gone through review versus those that haven't. And as teachers try to use these different tools and pick them up and begin to use them without really the due diligence that needs to go into it. So one of the things that we talked about this morning amongst that administrative meeting is what are we looking for when we're looking at these different vendors that we're using? What are the what are the red flags? What are the pros? What are the cons? What are the things that if you see, you know, turn and run as fast as you can versus what are the, okay, this looks like something that's going to be good to use. I asked the group, you know, how many times when you've signed up for something, have you read the terms of service and privacy policy that is associated with that service? And all of them laughed. And that's what we said, well, that's what we need to do. We need to read all of those things. And that's part of the process. So when it comes to working with vendors, when it comes to looking at all these things, what do you recommend? What do you say that, you know, we all should be doing when we do that work? So first of all, I applaud you for having that conversation because I think vendors in general are, are a big blind spot for most organizations for a variety of reasons. The way that I like advising clients to think about their sort of vendor ecosystem or partner ecosystem, whatever you want to call it, is it's really important to understand sort of the context and the role of each of the vendors whether it's just a vendor that you're buying software from, whether it's a security, you know, on-campus security firm or, or whatever, really understanding the role that they play and not having, not trying to have a one-size-fits-all, but also not trying to make it overly complicated. So you don't want like 50 different sort of questionnaires or due diligence questions. And so really understanding the context and the role that they play and then prioritizing the level of due diligence that you do specific to them. Typically, we'll see I'll say two or three tiers of categories of prioritization, and you kind of pluck it, the vendors into one of those two or three tiers. I wouldn't suggest more than three. One actually pretty cool use of AI that you could think about is take that terms of service agreement, put it into something like ChatGPT and, and ask it to basically analyze it 
as an IT director and see what it comes out as far as summarizing or identifying any kind of red flags or pain points. So that's one thought. The other thing is, if you don't actually know, most organizations think they know. They're sort of universe of vendors that they work with. And then when they find out who they actually, you know, as an organization are actually working with, they're always shocked at how many more there are. Start with your accounts receivable, folks. I can guarantee if there's a vendor and you're paying them something, they're going to come and let you know. That's a good place just to start. So if you struggle with like, hey, I don't, I think I know who, but I don't really know, go to your accounts receivable, folks, and pull that. And some red flags, and again, this is somewhat role specific, but if there's nothing around key performance metrics, around quality of service, especially if it's like an outsourced, like managed service provider, IT outsourced IT provider, service level objectives, service level agreements, you know, the devil's in the details. A related mistake that I see, and I'm actually working with a client right now who went down a path that they probably wish they hadn't, is they didn't clearly define the user require their requirements up front. And so being able to take their actual requirements and what they really wanted the vendor to do relative to what they are doing today, there's a disconnect. And so put the time in up front to say, okay, what do we really want? What's the role of this vendor? What are the security expectations? What are the privacy expectations? Do we have a way, and this is not true in a lot of contracts, do we actually have a way that makes sense to exit if something happens where we need to part ways? No one ever wants to talk about, yeah, it's not fun. You always want to assume every vendor relationship is going to be great and perfect. That's just not the reality of it. And this is more for like services type vendors, less so on like the software side or software as a service type side. So basically you're saying that our schools need a prenup. Yeah, really. And you also want to make sure that it's reviewed by not just like one person. Like I think that the practice that we see a lot is, well, Joe, the IT director reviewed it, so it must be good. Well, how about somebody from legal? How about somebody from the finance team, from risk or whoever? And it could be that, you know, especially in schools, you know, there's one person that wears a bunch of different hats and maybe they wear all those hats and that's fine. But thinking about it, not just from a, hey, this is a software as a service platform we're buying. So we're just going to have the IT director review it and we're good to go. There's other stakeholders that should at least have a chance to take a look at it and say, hey, yeah, I'm good with this. Or here's something we need to think about and, and make a business decision, if you will. So you brought up a really cool use of AI, the idea that you could take the terms and service language, which is mind numbing, and plunk that into AI and ask ChatGPT or whatever system to assess it for you. That's really interesting. But earlier you said, I'm both excited and terrified about AI. So let's stop down and talk about that in two parts, my friend. Chapter one, why you're excited. Chapter two, why you're terrified. Please elaborate. (laughs) Chapter one, we'll start with the positive. So within Anchor, we actually have, and have had for a number of years, a what we call our AI Institute. And it's a bunch of people way smarter than me who I just hold in very high regard. And I have the pleasure of sitting actually on our innovation council internally. And so I get a chance to have a window into some of the cool stuff that they're doing. It's what I call the art of the possible. There's just so much potential here to take mundane tasks, not super relevant to the schools, but there's some relevancy, I think, from a contract. Like I know lawyers, friends of mine that are using AI, they've got to read a 500-page briefing or a new regulation that came out that's a thousand pages, and they're able to take that and plug it into ChatGPT or one of the other tools and have it summarize, you know, what are the top 10 things? So what would have been a very 
mundane, very dry, very painful, and quite frankly, probably not the best use of their time because they're much more talented than that. Now they get something that comes out of it that they can then go take action and, you know, it sort of eliminates that. So I'm excited for the advances that it's going to happen. I mean, you, you know, I think every field across the board, medical advances, academic, I think it's going to open a lot of doors for new learning opportunities. You know, my son is in the tech field, probably no surprise. And so he's, you know, looking at grad degrees in AI and that sort of thing. And I'm kind of jealous, quite frankly, because it's pretty cool stuff. But I don't even think we just scratch the surface, so to stay on the art of the possible and what it means. Specific to security and privacy, I think it's going to create an opportunity for organizations that have low resources to be essentially be a force multiplier. So I'm excited about some of the technology that I think is going to come out around really, i say this the right way, but a tool that is able to very much take a tailored view of an organization and kind of the way it operates, behavior analytics, those sorts of things, and almost act like an offensive, like proactively in an automated fashion, react and respond and really shorten that containment. So it's not that they're not going to get attacked, but if they do get attacked, the walls will be up faster. They'll be contained more quickly. And again, I think there's lots of opportunities on the negative side, sort of chapter two a little bit, the threat actors are using it to make their hacking tools better, faster, cheaper, those sorts of things. And we're already seeing that, unfortunately, even around things like just creating more compelling phishing emails. One of the things that I always find interesting is when we see these phishing emails, that if only they would hire like an English teacher, because the grammar, there's lots of red flags, but if you can now put that through one of the, the AI tools and have it clean it up and make it sound much more sort of American, now all of a sudden it's probably going to be a lot more effective and you can literally do that in seconds, unfortunately. But it's exciting. I think I think overall it's going to advance society generally, not just from a security standpoint, but with great power comes great responsibility. And I don't think we've got our head wrapped around that. It's really interesting. I mean, I think a cool supplemental audio for this podcast would be a recording of your dinnertime conversation with your son, the two of you kind of geeking out about all that is possible in the world of AI and cyber safety stuff. It's really interesting that you, you know, bring up some interesting pluses and minuses in terms of what challenges this might present, but specifically focused on independent schools. We are similarly having these dichotomous conversations, right? It's going to be great for these reasons, but then there are issues for these other reasons. Are schools coming to you for support in this space? Are they nervous, scared? Because obviously, Bill and Hiram are a little bit more forward-leaning. I think most Atlas core community members are leaning into AI, recognizing there's things to be careful of, right? But I think that they're generally interested in the possibility of it. Are schools coming to you for help? And are there things that in particular schools should be focused on when it comes to AI and making sure that we're protecting ourselves as we step out into this world of exploration? Yeah. So most of the conversations that we're having with clients to include schools is a very common kind of question is like, they know they should be doing something to take advantage of AI, but they don't know where to start to do it in a, a safe and secure way. And there's not a lot of regulations out there either. So they're also sort of trying to future-proof a little bit as much as you can. So most of the conversations right now are, I would say, from a governance perspective, like how do we dip our toes in or maybe put one foot in and let folks 
explore the art of the possible, start taking advantage of this amazing technology and evolution, quite frankly, but at the same time, not <laughs> open Pandora's box and have it get out of control, which, you know, in some cases it's like, how do we put Pandora back in the box, quite frankly? And it gets really hard. You know, we all use search engines, Google, Bing, whatever. They're now, you know, have AI built in. There's even like, if you're allowing your students or your staff, faculty and staff to access some of the different search engines, there's some lawyers that I know that are starting to argue that you're already using AI, even if you said you're not using it. So if you're putting any kind of data or anything, you shouldn't be into a search engine, then you're essentially probably already violating something. Some of the things that we're seeing folks think about is it's essentially the equivalent of like a private cloud. So private AI, private chat GPT, or something that has a compartmentalization aspect to it where they're able to control what comes in and what comes out. They can provide guidance around like prompt engineering, like what's the best way, the most productive way to interact with the tools and those sorts of things. Because it's what folks also don't realize is like, unless you're an AI engineer to get the full value out of a tool like ChatGPT or, or all the other ones that are out there, you really have to understand how you should interact with that. And so what we find is a lot of folks are doing trial and error and they're uploading things that they probably shouldn't be and that they don't need to be. And so there's all these considerations. And again, especially in a learning environment, like you want to foster that creativity, but you want to do it in just like anything else, whether you know physical security, like you want to you make sure that the students are doing it in a safe and secure manner. And it's a challenge. So I think thinking about it from a governance perspective and then kind of working down and being receptive. We do have some clients, not on the school side, that are just said, we're not, the answer is no, in no way, shape or form when we adopting this. I think they're going to regret that in rather short order. That's just not feasible. I mean, the way people have access to, you know, all the different tools that are out there today, it's just totally impractical in my opinion and, and unrealistic. Well, and that leads me to a great question is that, there is so much to keep track of. You have your eye on the ball all the time in this space, but whether it's AI or cyber safety, data privacy in general, where do schools turn, right? Because certainly there's resources from Atlas and we have the Atlas 360 suite of products where you can kind of do a self-evaluation to see where you stand. You can score yourself in a rubric. And then we we provide a, a companion manual for schools that maybe don't have, for example, an incident response plan. So we'll at least give them a place to start. And I think that that's useful for schools that are on this journey. But if they're listening to this and they're overwhelmed because they either haven't been keeping up with these trends or just maybe are overwhelmed and so they don't really know where to start. Like, do you have any guidance for schools in terms of resources or how to stay one ear to the ground on these issues? How do they make sure they're doing all they can to protect their schools in these particular topic areas? Yeah, first of all, the products that you mentioned that Atlas provides, I think are, are tremendous. I'm a big fan of KISS, Keep It Simple. And a lot of times when we find schools in particular that haven't really done much to invest in security, it's a lot of times what, what I'll hear, especially, you know, when I speak at conferences is they don't kind of know where to start. It's an overwhelming topic. It's only getting more overwhelming, whether that's from a regulatory perspective or now they've got AI, now they've got prior, like all the, and you got to start somewhere. So I think the guides that Atlas provides, I think are, are a great place to start. There's sort of some similar free materials that are available from CISA, from DHS, Department of Education. Like there's a lot of good information that's out there. The reality though, is you've got to buy into it as an organization. So it's one thing to have access to all of the 
you know, the helpful job aids and the incident response plan templates example, that's great. But there's got to be a cultural buy-in. And it really starts, I think, within the leadership team and the board of trustees as well. Like there's got to be leadership buy-in because they, to your point, there are a lot of job aids that are out there, but we still see, and they've been around for quite a while. We'll still see organizations that haven't adopted them or taken advantage of them. To be honest, I think that's somewhat inexcusable because again, they're, I think they're easy to use. The way I explain it is every, we're on a journey. So it's being able to tell a story. Does anybody expect you in 30 days, 60 days to all of a sudden be perfect if you don't have anything? But at least be able to articulate that here's the journey we're starting. Here's the path we're going down. We're doing it in a thoughtful way. We're going to leverage resources like what Atlas provides. And we're just going to start, you know, it's the how to eat an elephant one bite at a time. But in today's age, if your answer is I'm going to stick my head in the sand and not do anything, then shame on you. It's inexcusable. Yeah, we owe more to our student community than that. There's an ethical consideration of making sure that we're taking steps to at least have a a standard of care that we tried, right? That we just, we gave it our effort to make sure that we protected our students while they were in our care, especially they're very clean, as Hiram brings up, the very clean social security numbers and identities, their digital twins that are out there, they're clean and fresh and ripe for the taking. And it's our responsibility, I think, as adults entrusted with their care to kind of make sure that we have their backs and take steps to protect them. So, Bob, I have a, a follow-up thought. I'm curious. So, Bill and I, we push really hard at our schools in these particular areas. But one of the things that I, I find challenging is, from a staffing perspective, we're not attorneys. We're not compliance officers. Are you starting to see a movement, say, something that's occurring in higher ed that's going to trickle down to K-12, where schools are going to need resources like this? Because for schools in this space to go to an attorney that's going to charge several hundred dollars an hour to review the terms of service for applications A through J for a particular school year, that's a lot of cash. A lot of schools don't necessarily have that discretionary income. Yeah. So something interesting that I mentioned earlier that I'm on our innovation council. So we are, or have developed what is called a multi-agent tenant for ChatGPT. And what's really interesting is you can build a team of experts within the tool. So let's say you're doing a contract review, you need a lawyer, you need a security expert, you need a privacy expert, you know, maybe risk management or a business officer. You can essentially have ChatGPT, in this case, create four different individuals, and I'm using that in air quotes, that bring that expertise. So again, here's a great example where you're right, a school is not going to be able to go out and spend probably thousands of dollars to find experts in each of those to review a document, let's say, or a potential contract. But it's a way that AI could really sort of bring that expertise. And I've seen some of the analysis that this multi-agent platform does, and it's mind-blowing, it's a little scary. I mean, they interact like humans. So it's, you know, I'm just envisioning like, you know, now you put it in four robots and they're sitting in a conference room and now all of a sudden you don't need me anymore. But it is a challenge. At the end of the day, the regulatory landscape is just changing so rapidly. And I think the bar, it's not just changing as in more states are adopting regulations that could apply to K-12 schools. It's that the regulations that are on the books, the bar is getting raised higher and higher and higher. And so the burden on the IT professional 
in an independent school is, I feel like every week we turn around, it's like one more thing on their plate. And I think it's a challenge. I mean, I think it is a significant challenge and it's unrealistic to assume that an IT professional is going to be able to wear all those hats and do it well. And at the same time, keep everything up and running, make sure the help desk is responsible, like all the, all the other things that come to running a school and, and being supportive and technologies pervasive across every aspect of, you know, the independent school stating the obvious. So that is the most important piece, but to then layer on top two, three, four sort of additional roles or areas of expertise, I think is a challenge. And again, I'm excited about AI potentially being a solution for that. I don't think the right answer though is, or at least not a very satisfying answer if I'm sitting in that IT director role is to then turn around and say, well, here's a bunch of resources you can go read because it still takes that person's time and then they got to apply it, like all that. So again, it's important to have those materials available. The challenge is then there's only so many hours in the day. So one of the things that I think is interesting there is every time somebody will talk about, you know, the differences in IT, they'll talk about it from the perspective of, oh, well, you're, you're in education. This is how we're doing it in enterprise. This is how we do it in education. And I think about the number of clients that we serve. I think about the number of devices that we have deployed. I think about the number of tools that we use. And I often say to myself, education's worse. It's much harder. There's much more going on. There's more moving pieces to all of this. So don't tell me that enterprise is the top tier and education is this below tier where, you know, it's not having to adapt to so many things. I think there's a lot more given the age range, given all the different variables that we deal with. So one of the questions that I've, I've got for you is thinking about that when you talk to education, when you talk to enterprise, how are those conversations similar? How are those conversations different? Where do you see the greatest degree of risk, or I'll even say focus needing to be when you're talking to those two different groups? I would agree with you. And I've served as CIOC, so on the enterprise side, I think it is much more challenging and difficult to be an IT director in a K through 12 school than it is to be Wait, wait, wait. I need you to say that again. Say it again. Lower your voice. <laughs> slow it down. <laughs> Let's get on the record once and for all. Bob Olson, say it again. Yeah. I wholeheartedly believe that it is much more difficult to be an IT director at a K-12 through school than it is in the for-profit sector. It's probably a whole nother couple-hour session on why, but it is Trying to balance, I touched on this a little bit earlier, trying to balance creating that safe and secure environment with extremely limited resources. Little tangent. So sometimes I'll have like enterprise clients, they know we work with schools a lot. They're like, what's that like? So it's sort of the inverse of what you're asking. And because they generally are interested and inquisitive. And when we start talking about like typical like headcount, their mind is just blown. They're like, how is that even possible? And I'm like, because the people are just that talented and they're really, really good at multitasking. Our people are unicorns. They are dedicated <laughs> unicorns. They really are. So I think one of the differences in my enterprise clients and relations behavior for that, like, I think one of the big differences is the passion level that I see. The tie that every faculty and staff member has to really the mission of the school. I think that's a big difference. And it's not that we don't see that on the enterprise side. But it's almost like a different degree of loyalty and a different degree of passion as it relates to creating that environment. Clearly stating the obvious, you know, resources, whether it's people, 
or capital investment dollars are, are generally a lot more limited on the school side as opposed to the enterprise side. Some similarities, everybody wants to be safe and secure. Like nobody, you know, intentionally sets out to do something that doesn't benefit the organization. I think there's also a common risk management sort of approach or thoughtfulness. You know, in some cases it's formal, in some cases it's more informal and ad hoc, but, you know, I think folks do understand for the most part that this is really a risk management issue. It's not just a IT issue or just a cybersecurity issue. I think another commonality is the technology that's out there. The good news is a lot of it is sort of the enterprise grade stuff is available not always at the right price point, but it is available. There's some good options, lower cost, but still really effective tools that are out there. I think that's kind of cool. The other thing I think that's a big difference is if you look at, you've got faculty, you've got staff, you've got the students, you've got guests, like you have a much more disparate set of end user communities that have different needs, different levels of proficiency, even more so than what we typically see in an enterprise type organization where it's much more sort of homogeneous. And so, you know, a school IT director trying to satisfy the requirements and sort of have everybody be happy, I think is an incredible challenge that I don't think most sort of enterprise organizations face. And it's not that they don't have, you know, within the different like function areas, finance, HR, legal, like they all, but I just feel like it's very different. Some of it, quite frankly, is a generational thing. You know, you've got elementary, middle school students or high school students that are more sophisticated combined with adults, if you will. or And it's interesting where you've got, again, just a lot of different stakeholders with different levels of understanding of implications of doing things they shouldn't, how to understand the leverage of technology, adherence to policies. It's just a much more dynamic environment, I think, than what we typically see in an enterprise world. Yeah, it's a diverse group of stakeholders, and it's really complicated and complex. It's a tough puzzle. So when we gather as a community at the Atlas Annual Conference this spring in Reno, for those of you who are interested in this topic and also looking for some deeper dive conversations with Bob and the Ankara team, there's an entire track that is sponsored by Ankara. And so I want to publicly, first of all, thank you for your organization's continued support of Atlas. But in doing so, you basically buy out a room at our conference and you help our people the entire conference long with specialized topics. I'm sitting here looking at the agenda and all of these sessions will be available on Atlas's website. But you guys are, you and your team are going to dive into the partnership between IT and operations when it comes to like both physical and cybersecurity. You're going to look at data privacy and how to have that compliance, checking those boxes with emerging regulations. You're looking at prioritizing security monitoring controls to focus on critical assets and events, how to map your cybersecurity program to a framework. You guys are going to dive into artificial intelligence and how to manage vendors, like how to mitigate some risk when it comes to vendor management. I can't thank you enough for bringing this specialized content to the independent school community because I know you do handle and work with a lot of different types of clients, but the fact that you're honing your expertise into a really specific niche that we serve, it's really great for our members. And it's a really an incredible opportunity for our attendees. So 
I appreciate that. I'm looking forward to all of those topics and more. Your sessions last year, Ankara's track was like standing room only. Like people couldn't get in the room. And then after the sessions, they're running up to us going, where's the deck? Where's the deck? I go, I don't, hold on. Wait a minute, whose deck? They wanted the PowerPoints. The minute you guys were done, people were like swarming the membership desk, asking for the resources. I think that's a pretty good sign of a good conference session. No, we appreciate it. I, it is truly, and I'm not, I'm literally, I'm genuinely not saying it is my favorite conference. And I was so bummed because last year's was the first one, I think it's six years that I hadn't been able to go to because of a personal commitment, but it is a very collaborative environment. That's one thing I love about the conference is everybody is willing and even beyond willing, just very actively interested in helping their fellow professionals. And we totally buy into that. Like, love being part of the conference and just the Atlas network. Quite frankly, it's very rewarding. I've got the two kids I mentioned earlier, both of them are products of independent schools. So I definitely believe and buy into the mission within the practice. We've got a number of folks that also uh, came up through the independent school rec. So lots of great examples. And it's an opportunity, honestly, for us to kind of give back a little bit as well. So we love it and appreciate the partnership and I'm looking forward to next year. I'm not missing this one. (laughs) So I'll be there. I will be there. Good. I was going to say, I hope that whatever personal obligations pop up, you're going to have to just tell them to wait because you've you've got your commitment in Reno this year. (laughs) I can tell you, having sat in on one of those sessions last year, you know, just nerding out, just sitting there, you know, listening to what was going on and turning to Ali Wenzel, who is like, I talk about with data maps all the time and trying to figure out how to manage vendors and all this stuff. She and I sat there and I think Hiram was in the room as well. We're kind of just like going through all this. And it was like one of those things where, to Christina's point, like afterwards, I was up talking with the gentleman that was presenting it, just asking him a ton of questions and then going back and talking to Hiram and Allie and like saying, okay, you know, this is what we can do here. And it was like one of those sessions that it wasn't even over. And I had like an action plan and already had like spreadsheets out and, you know, my data map out. And I'm like looking at all the ways in which I could pop it on and do all these things in different ways. And it was like, you know, I always look for one thing when I go to a conference or one session, you know, out of one session. And it was like coming out of that, I had like four or five things. I got on follow-up calls, you know, with you guys about it because it was just that invigorating and really that inspiring in terms of actual practical things that you can do that is going to have real meaning to the work that we do on a day-to-day basis. So my very long-winded way, which I do often, of saying thank you for that commitment to the Atlas community because you bring a lot to it and we benefit from it greatly. No, you're very welcome. I mean, that, that is exactly an example of the passion and why one of the big differences between independent school, IT professionals, and not independent. Now offended every one of my enterprise clients probably, but... That's all right. They won't listen to this podcast. The people who love you will listen to it. You'll be okay. (laughs) You never know. That's a perfect example of of why we love working with schools. Yeah, well, you're an indispensable partner for us. So in the beginning of this conversation, I started by asking Bill and Hiram what tech they couldn't live without. So I've got to ask, same question posed to you, Bob. What tech could you not live without? It can be a hardware, it can be a software, but what tech is just core to your heartbeat each day? I'm going to take some liberties and not have it necessarily be just one because literally every one of you touched on so Hiram. I'm sitting here in front of three monitors. So fist bump to you for the three monitors, the air tags. I think someone mentioned air tags. I have three dogs. 
That's my trackers now for my dogs, which I love. That's awesome. Yeah. It's a very cost-effective and I've had to use it to find them. And so it does work if you have any doubt about it. Not that there probably was any doubt. And then I find myself, I travel a ton. So my phone is now like, my productivity is, if I didn't have my phone, I think that probably would be my biggest thing. If I didn't have my phone, we as a firm have done a good job of sort of empowering like the mobile user. And so I can almost do my entire job just using my phone to some extent um, or some limitations, but that's probably the biggest thing. I mean, I understand. I almost didn't go to the post office, Bob. Like I almost canceled (laughs) my errand because I couldn't find my phone. Like that's where we're at with this. It's crazy. And I also am thinking, Bill and Hiram, I think maybe we should have like a how many monitors do you have competition among our listeners (laughs) or like a show us your monitors. Wouldn't that be fun? Like tag us on LinkedIn. I want to see your monitor setup. And I feel like we could probably give a really cool prize at the annual conference for like the best monitor setup. Would either of you win that competition, by the way? I don't think I'd win because there's a limited amount of space. I have a feeling Hiram probably has something like, you know, it looks like Starfleet Command that, you know, (laughs) in front of him, you know, just by his very nature. Looking at him now, you can't see it, but he's got a monitor behind him. So if he's got three in front of him and one behind him, I've lost this already. Yeah, I've got five if you count the laptop screen in this room. Oh, Lord, Hiram. I think you need an intervention. (laughs) All right. Before we land this plane and wrap up this incredible conversation with Bob, I do just have one more very important question. This year, we are heading to Reno, as we mentioned, for the annual conference. So are the Atlas members going to see you gambling? Are you a betting man? We're going to be at a casino. So is that exciting to you? It is exciting. I've actually never been to Reno, so I'm very much looking forward to that. I do gamble a little bit. I wouldn't say I'm a big gambler, but I do enjoy it a little bit. So I will be gambling. Bill, Hiram, are you going to take Bob gambling? Are you guys into that? I have two kids in college. (laughs) (laughs) So that already is a gamble. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) I need every penny I can get. Though I am bringing my snowboard because I'm taking the two days, the Thursday and Friday. I'm going over to Tahoe with two other people and we're going to hit the slopes for two days. So I'm saving my money for that. Well, you're going to save up for those monitors too. (laughs) I'm glad that's happening after the conference instead of before the conference, because I don't have... Oh, yeah. No, no, no. That's right. No hospital visits. Two of them are current ALI participants, so I know they need to be able to walk up on stage at least for part of it. So I got to make sure they're healthy. Exactly. There you go. I'll probably bring some discretionary dollars, you know, usually in in the $20 range. I must admit, I did go to Vegas a few years ago with uh, the head of our upper school, and we were looking at some different technological devices and whatnot, and the head of school gave us 20 bucks to spend to bring back a lot of money. And he went to the roulette table, and I said, oh, put it on double zero. Put it on double zero. And he's like, no, we're never going to win double zero. So he puts it on black. What hits? Double zero. (laughs) So is that how we're funding our cybersecurity efforts now here, folks? Absolutely. I think that we are risk averse on all fronts on this podcast. We don't take chances with cybersecurity and we don't take chances at penny slots, apparently. Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an incredible conversation. And I know that as these issues and trends continue to evolve, I think that we're going to need to keep our finger on the pulse with you. So keep us in the loop. And you are welcome back anytime to talk about these issues because I know they're top of mind for our members. Well, thank you again for having me. It's been a lot of fun. 
love our partnership and love continuing it for many years to come. So thank you so much for the opportunity and definitely a fun time. And Bob, we'll see you in Reno. <laughs> I'll be there. I'll be next to you in the slot machine. So. Bring out those nickels. <laughs> you guys are a mess. I'm starting to regret this decision to go to Reno. I, it was an experiment to begin with, but I think I'm already pulling back. We're never going to do this again. <laughs> Thanks, guys. This has been Talking Technology with Atlas, produced by the Association of Technology Leaders and in Independent Schools. For more information about Atlas and Atlas membership, please visit theatlas.org. If you enjoyed this discussion, please subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast with your colleagues in the independent school community. Thank you for listening. This episode has been brought to you by Veracross and Toddle. Atlas thanks our vendor partners for their support.